Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 277, Interview with James Fry. It's basically about the business of writing, and they tell you the stuff they wish that someone had told them when they got started as writers. You know, somebody can be a successful marketer and not necessarily provide a quality product. I'm going to let Moses go because he's frothing at the mouth to talk about this one. (laughs) (laughs) I like writing. I like reading. I like to immerse myself in books. That seems like a pretty good career choice. (laughs) Oh, you sound terrible. What happened? I'm just kidding. Oh, man. And now, pod structured on a Zeppelin by an apprentice mage and delivered by a rocket ship to a benevolent dragon. Adventures in sci-fi public sci-fi sci-fi Welcome to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, your podcast for science fiction and fantasy literature. This is Sean Farrell. The interview I have today with James Fry is on the long side, so we're going to do a quick introduction today. But I promise that very soon we'll have uh, the gang around, we'll do some sort of topic discussion. I don't know, we'll do something fun. If you have a topic you would like to hear discussed or like to have a, a guest brought on the show to discuss. We are certainly open to what you would like to hear. So please do email those ideas to us at adventuresinsci-fi-publishing at gmail.com. A couple of quick site notes. If you haven't been by, we do have some new reviews up. We have a new book review of How the White Trash Zombie Got Her Groove Back. Uh, Christy Cherish brought us that review, novel by Diane Rowland. And Christy also brings us a review of the game um, Destiny, which I've seen commercials for on TV. I'm not a gamer myself, but if you are a gamer and if you've been wondering about this game, check it out. A little short snippet of Christy's review. She loves the way it looks. She thought the story was terrible. So (laughs) come, uh, come read the review and share your opinions if you are a gamer, if you've played that game, and tell us what you think. We are giving away some books. Let me see here. We have a, a while back we supported a Kickstarter project from a, a Zero One Publishing, and they were doing a Kickstarter to put together World War Kaiju, and they got the funds that they needed, and the project is done. Edited by Kat Rocha, I do believe. Uh, let's see here. Book one, The Cold War Years. It is an impressive little graphic novel. I'm not well versed in graphic novels. I really like graphic novels, but I've never found the budget to start um, delving into that realm on top of books and what I have to spend on my kids. (laughs) So uh, anyway, this looks like it's uh, really beautifully put together. And we have two copies that we can give away. So we're going to have to do uh, America only, sorry, American residents only, since I'm mailing these out myself. And in order to enter the contest, all you need to do is talk about us on social media. Make sure that we are tagged so we know that you did it. It's at AISFP Podcast on Twitter. Or you could just share our um, status update on Facebook for this episode, and that will count you and include you in the contest, okay? So that's all you need to do. Give us some love on, on social media. Tell us, uh, t- tell your friends about us to help spread the word about the podcast, and you'll be entered to win this book. We're going to do a couple of weeks on this. Let's say today's the third, so we will say you have until the uh, 17th. Okay, we'll say 10-17 is when the winner for this will be selected, so you have a couple of weeks. All right, let's get into the interview. James Fry, you may know as the author of A Million Little Pieces. Several of his books have been number one on the New York Times list over the years. And this is his first science fiction novel, and it is called Endgame. He's actually a big fan of genre fiction, and so this interview is a lot of fun for me to do. But, you know, there's a twist to this book as well. There's a treasure hunt aspect to this book that anyone can win, and a lot of money is on the line. So a very cool project. Let's get into it right now with James Fry. Do you love genre fiction? Well, obviously you do if you're listening to this podcast, but do you love treasure hunts? And are you willing to put your skills to the test for a chance to win half a million dollars and enjoy an exciting story at the same time? 
Then James Fry, the number one New York Times bestselling author of A Million Little Pieces, My Friend Leonard, and the final testament of the Holy Bible, has a challenge for you. Read his new novel, Endgame the Calling, solve the clues, find the key, and you can unlock a treasure chest filled with gold coins at Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas. And the hunt begins October 7th. James, thank you for joining us to discuss this exciting new project. My pleasure. I'm stoked to be here. I have quite a few questions I want to ask you about the story itself. You know, that's the uh, the curse of being a literature major. Um, and uh, the book was a lot of fun. I found it difficult to put down. Um, but first, we have to talk about how this idea for the treasure hunt first came to you, because what you're putting together here is an immersive reading experience, unlike anything I think I've ever heard of. Thanks. I mean, that that's definitely what we were trying to do, is build sort of the first 21st century reading experience, you know, something that was a book, but that also used so many of the tools we have available to us um, as storytellers, things like social media, YouTube, um, websites, search results, mapping coordinates, mobile games. Um, The original idea came to me, I guess, when I was 10 years old. Sounds sort of weird, but... Um, I grew up in Cleveland, and when I was 10 in 1980, my mom bought home this book called uh, Masquerade. Um, Masquerade was a book written by a painter in England named Kip Williams. And it was this pretty simple um, picture book that had 16 pages of text and 16 paintings in it. And written into the text and buried in the in the paintings were clues, and it's you could solve the, the clues if you could figure out the puzzle and buried in the text and the paintings. It led you to the location somewhere on Earth where the author had buried a solid gold jewel-encrusted rabbit worth 50000 bucks. Um, and I was sort of fascinated and obsessed with this book. Um, I just thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. Um, I read it over and over and over again and tried to solve it. I had dreams of, like, the biggest pile of Star Wars action figures in the history of the world. Um, (laughs) But I didn't solve it. Um, But what I loved about it, and what I literally thought about ever since I was 10, was how how it turned a book into something more than just a book. How it made the reading experience something that went with you everywhere you went. Where you walked around in the world and you thought, I wonder if the rabbit's buried there. I wonder... Um, if that thing in that picture I saw was a clue and you kept going back to the book to try to figure it out and you kept engaging with the book in a different way each time you picked it up. Um, I've always wanted to try to do something like it. Um, and Endgame is, you know, in some ways the same thing, but on a, on a massive scale, you know, it's a, it's a series of books that will have puzzles in them and the puzzles are, built in a way that it, it takes you out of the book. It takes you into digital places and real-world places, and, and hopefully it, it, it makes readers engage in, in a new way, and in, in, in a way that um, they love as much as I love Masquerade. The book that you read as a child, that the, the golden... Encrusted bunny uh, that was found eventually, right? But it took about what was it, twenty years for someone to find it? No, it took three years. Three, three years. years. Okay. It was, yeah, it was found in nineteen eighty three. Um. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, 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 we're not. We don't think you know it's going to take that long with us. We think it'll it'll be actually a lot faster. Um. Mostly because the world's a lot different. You know, people have access to information in ways that they didn't in in those days, and the internet allows people to work together. Um, right. You know, we'll see how long it takes. It takes people. I hope it takes. Uh, I don't want it to take three years, but I hope it takes longer than three days. Right. <laughs> that would kind of uh, mess up the marketing engine and the word of mouth. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, that brings up a question, though. I mean, this is a lot of money on the line. Um, what What is it like to take that kind of risk to put that much money out there, especially if it is discovered quickly? Right. So it is. The prizes are big and they are real. Um, 
the prize for the first book for for Endgame, the calling is five hundred thousand dollars. The prize for the second book, which is going to be called Endgame: The Event, is going to be a million dollars. And the the prize for the third book, which is going to be called Endgame War, is uh, $1.5 million. Um, I mean, it's a little bit scary and weird for sure, but I like taking risks. I like trying new things. I like trying radical things. Um, I I actually am putting up all the prize money myself, Mm. um, which is also horrifying and and, (laughs) and, um, sort of thrilling, too. Um, we'll see how long it takes. I, I, I really, I just hope readers love it. I hope readers love the experience of it. I hope readers love the book just as a book, as a story and as a mythology. Um, you know, you, 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 your intro, you talked about genre fiction. I love genre fiction. I read a ton of genre fiction. Um, and I've always wanted to try to do some, you know, write it on a book. Um, so for me, this is, the whole experience of it has been super fun and exciting. And, um, you know, the idea that we're doing new things that have never been done before is, is awesome to me. Well, and this is the first book that I've experienced where I have to question, okay, am I a reader or am I a player? I mean, you, you can choose how deeply you want to interact with the material. Um, are there any rules to this game that people should know about, or is it simply solve the clues and find the key? I mean, there are, there, there are rules, um, you know, the, the rules when, when the puzzle goes live and the book comes out, um, the, whatever the first puzzle you solve in the book will take you somewhere online where you'll, um, you'll, you'll see the rules. There's also a a website called endgamerules.com, which will have all the rules to, to the game on them. But the rules are mostly to make the thing legal. Mm-hmm. To make sure that we're we're following the laws, and so that everybody participating understands how everything works. Um, but as far as like you know practical rules, like it's really just solve the puzzle. If you're the first to solve the puzzle, you'll receive a key. If you re- receive that key, you go to Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas, and that key will open a case filled with five hundred thousand bucks of gold, and it's yours. Well, I've already read the book and I solved the puzzle, so sorry, everyone. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I think uh, I think the the version you had had a had a fake puzzle in it. Didn't have the real puzzle. Oh, of course, of course. Well, that would make sense. You got to keep it secret until it's live. That'd only be fair to everyone else. Yeah, I wrote the puzzle in the advanced reader copy. I did that with another guy in my office, and um, we sort of. You know, jokingly did it so that uh, if somebody solved it, they would realize that um, it led you to a box that sits under my desk in my office. Um, <laughs> shortly, literally within a week of the advanced reader copies going out, I got an email from a very, very smart reader who was like, is the, is the key hidden in a box under your desk? And we, <laughs> me and the guy who did it just sort of laughed. And, and I said, yes. Um, the real puzzle, I hired um, uh, an amazing company called Futuruption, which is run by a guy named Matt Labelitz, who's a, who has a, a PhD from MIT. Um, and the puzzle they built is extraordinary. It's so far beyond mm. anything I ever dreamed of. Um it's an amazing thing. And I don't actually know the solution. I know how the puzzle functions up to a certain point, And then after that, I don't know. Um, wow. So just as readers will be hopefully following along and seeing how people are making progress, I'll be doing the same thing. And how will, will we be able to track readers' progress? Will that be through one specific website through which the game is played? Um, we will not provide tracking, um, but we're imagining and hoping, um, that other people track various readers progress. Um, there's already a a Google plus page called the code Endgame, where people have been, um, you know, following our Twitter feeds and following our YouTube channel and, um, uh, trying to figure out what exactly is we're doing. It's been pretty cool to, to follow along with what they're doing just to see, 
and it's been good for us to see how fast they solve some of the puzzles we have been putting up and how they react to different things. And that's, and that's a whole nother part of what we're doing. Um, you know, that there's the book, there's also going to be the Google mobile game and the alternate reality game. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's going to be, a, there's going to be a ton of reader and, and gamer participation in that where, you know, there's going to be a separate fiction for that. And we're going to be reacting to, um, what, what the readers and gamers like, what they don't like, and they're going to definitely influence the fiction of that and, and where we go with that. Um, I think it's always important to respect your readers and and to respect your opinion and uh, their opinion. Um, and with this project, I think it's even cooler because they're going to, they're going to have a say in what we do and how we do it and where we go. That is really cool. That's awesome. Um, Tell us about the uh, October 7th event that you're having in Manhattan. So um, it roughly coincides with Comic-Con in New York, the release date. And we just wanted to have a big, awesome event. And so we rented out the Hammerstein Ballroom, which is on 34th Street and 8th Avenue. And I got two musicians I I totally love, um, James Murphy, who was the mastermind of LCD Sound System and, and legendary DJ Tong to come do the event with us. And hopefully it's a huge blowout. You know, we're, uh, we're launching the puzzle then. It all goes live. The treasure hunt starts. And hopefully there's a ton of readers and, 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 and supporters and fans who could come to celebrate with us and get to listen to some awesome music. Awesome. And I found a link. Uh, online, I can post that, folks. So if you're in the area or you want to make the trip, you could uh, look like you could buy tickets through that link I found. Um, so definitely check it out. Now, if you had Collective Soul playing there, I would so be there. You know, I'm just saying. <laughs> um, how about we do that for a book too? Oh, I'm there. I'm there. I, yeah, I wish I could make that happen. I've seen them live seven times, but I have no pull with them whatsoever. Um, <laughs> yeah, you may. Well, we'll, we'll track. We'll track down their agents and see see what we can do. <laughs> nice. I, w- I really would make that trip if you pulled that off. <laughs> um, you mentioned that you love reading genre fiction, and, and this is your first genre novel. So I just got to ask: Who are some of your favorite uh, writers in science fiction and fantasy, or some of your favorite science fiction and fantasy novels? I mean, you know, as a kid, the Tolkien books were um, my favorite books of all time. You know, they're they're unbelievable. Um, and I think they, like a lot of other people, they sort of ignited my love of reading. Um, Neil Stevenson is one of my favorite writers. Mm. You know, I think even outside of genre fiction, I, I literally think he's one of the best yeah. writers of, of, of any kind on the planet. Like every book is amazing. Um, every book is an adventure. The Baroque trilogy is, you know, one of the great masterpieces of the 20th, late 20th, early 21st century. Um, I guess it came out in the 21st century. So I'd say the early 21st century. Um, you know, I've just been reading this, this new trilogy called the Southern reach trilogy, which is pretty amazing. Um, you know, um, there's so much always to discover, and as much as you read, there's always more more great stuff to read. You know, you've written so many uh, great books that people love. Uh, how often do you have this experience where you read a book and you, you just get blown away by it and you think, oh my gosh, I hope I can be that good one day? You know, I mean, does, does that experience still happen for you like it happens for people like me who are still just struggling to get their first things out there? Totally. I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons you still read, you know, that, like I just said, the Southern Reach trilogy, I, it, it was, it was released really interestingly. It was the three books came out within about six months of each other. Um, and I read it and, and I was like, this is, um, spectacular. And, you know, I, I always, I always call it getting lit on fire because when you read a great book, it feels like you get, you get lit on fire. Um, and, and, and that's the best part of reading is finding something like that, that you just love and you go back to every day to get more of. And, and when, when it's finished, you miss it and, and you hope for more and you start looking for something else that'll do the same thing to you. 
Yeah, absolutely. I know Ray Bradbury is the guy that has done that the most to me. I got a whole, my whole first bookshelf on my bookcase is nothing but Ray Bradbury books. Um, but you know what? I want to talk about the story here. Let's get into the novel itself. Um, after all, if people, it, they need to enjoy the story, right, in order to participate in this event. And I'm happy to report that the story is, is great. It totally pulls you through. It's a very difficult book to put down. Um, and let's see here. Let's, Thank you. Yeah, let, you know, I want to start with this. Let's start with the mythology of the book. Uh, what I love about good science fiction is it presents big world issues, big mythos from trying to give answers of where we came from and why we're here and where we are going. And you have practiced creating new mythologies as you did for the final testament of the Holy Bible. So, so can you tell us about the mythos of this book and how that mythos blends into the religions and the cultures of our world? So I, I'm always fascinated with, um, I call it hidden history. You know, some people call it conspiracy theory. I love that TV show, Ancient Aliens. I love, you know, science fiction and, and UFO stuff. Um, and so I, I, I always sort of move around the web and read various websites and watch different shows. Um, and there's an unbelievable amount of sort of intriguing information. So some of what I'll say is, I believe, real information, and some of it's not, and I'll move back and forth. We'll start with the real information. Um, they decoded the genome in 2003. After they finished decoding it, they started going backwards in time to look at the genetics of people from different periods of time to see if we had evolved or not. And if we had, how we had evolved. They reached a point in human history about 12,000 years ago where the genetics related to our cognitive function changed radically. There's no explanation for it. Um, it's not a natural change. Um, the change made us much, much smarter. Um, hmm. So human beings that look like us have walked the earth for 200,000 years, but humans that think like us have only walked the earth for about 12,000. Um, at the same time that happened, all of the world's first civilizations were formed. Um, all of the world's first civilizations were formed around gold mines. Nobody knows why, um, but they were devoted to the mining of gold. Now, gold is um, a very pretty metal, but it, it's not functional, so they couldn't have made a hammer or a sword or uh, a knife out of it. Um, it's not particularly rare, and whatever value it has is arbitrary value that we've placed on it as a financial instrument. Um, at the same time, both of those things happened. All of the world's first origin myths were born. And they all say the same thing, which is our omnipotent creator descended from the sky amidst smoke and fire, created man, gave us rules to live by, and then left. But before leaving, told us someday they would return, and when they returned, the world would end. Um, I look at those three things, and I think, all right, Aliens came to Earth. They needed gold. Uh, they saw these animals running around. Um, we weren't very smart, so they engineered us to make us smart enough to organize in the labor force. They had us dig up gold, and then they left, but told us someday they would come back. That was the starting point for my mythology, and I think it's a, a really awesome, broad starting point to build a world. Uh, the world we built is that aliens came here and needed gold. They created 12 original lines of humanity, 12 original civilizations all over the world. They needed gold for fuel cells that um, they used to move their ships. Um, you know, the, the civilizations um, achieved the, the goal, which was, you know, dig up a massive amount of gold and give it to our omnipotent creators. And then when those creators left, they told us um, that when they came back, a game would be played, and that game would be that de would determine the future of humanity, and that these original twelve civilizations had to keep somebody under the age of twenty prepared to play that game at all times. So for thousands and thousands of years, these ancient societies, all of which are real societies and all of which are extinct, have actually continued to exist in secret and kept people prepared to play this game. All they knew was that it would be kicked off by a celestial event. Um, 
And so at the beginning of the first book, 12 asteroids simultaneously hit Earth's surface. They do, you know, billions of dollars of damage and kill millions of people. And everybody on Earth thinks it's this crazy fluke, except for the endgame players who know that the game just started. Um, there's something in the asteroids that tells them they have to go to China. Now we'll switch back to real information. Um, there's a giant pyramid in China. It's built to the exact dimensions of the Great Pyramid of Giza, except it's three times larger. Uh, the Chinese government doesn't let anybody near it, um, and they haven't for 50 years. They also do not allow pictures of it to be shown on commercial satellites. So the last picture of it that exists was taken in 1945 by a U.S. fighter pilot who was flying over it. Um, it's called the Great White Pyramid of Xi'an. Um, these players go to the Great White Pyramid and they're greeted there by an alien who tells them that Endgame is the hunt for three keys, that three keys have been hidden around the planet. The first of them to physically possess all of these three keys wins. And what they win is all of humanity is descended from these original 12 civilizations. The descendants of the winner will survive the coming apocalypse and everybody else on Earth is going to die. <laughs> you know, for me, it was like, you know, whenever I write a book, whatever kind of book it is, I always try to write a book I wish existed in the world. That's sort of my approach to it. A, a book that I wish I got to read. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like we, my starting point is a pretty awesome mythology, pretty, you know, it's broad. It, it gives us a ton of places to go, a ton of stories to yeah. tell. And it was big enough that we could build a whole universe on top of it. It's so easy for us in Western culture, from the Judeo-Christian culture, to even if we don't read the Bible very much, we can still have meaning in that use of 12, because you have the, the 12 tribes of Judah and the 12 disciples, and here's the 12 original lines of humanity and then the 12 descendants within those lines. And there's just all these things like that in the book that really tie in to our cultural understanding, which is really nice. It gives it this authenticity. Yeah, I mean, we, we, or I did a lot of research into numerology and Bible codes and numerical importance of different cultures. I mean, you read the book, so you see it's laced with numbers. Yes, um, yes. And, and, you know, those numbers all have meaning, you know, and they'll have different meaning from people of different cultures. Um, so, it, you know, that, and that was part of the fun of the book, too, is learning all this new stuff and, and interpreting it how I wanted to interpret it and using it how I wanted to use it to, to tell what I hope is a, you know, epic story uh, set in today's world. You know, the other thing I really wanted to do was set a, a sort of sci-fi epic in our world. You mentioned uh, how important numbers are in the book and just details in particular, are very important throughout the book. In fact, if you'll humor me, if I want to read just a couple of sentences here um, from early on. Let me open the book here. All right, this is a description uh, during a, uh, uh, a flight. Um, the plane jerks. It is flying at 31,565 feet. The wind is coming from the north northwest at 221 miles per hour. The fastened seatbelt light comes on. It's rough enough that 167 of the 176 passengers grip their armrests. 140 of them look at the person next to them for reassurance. 18 start praying silently. There are so many details in the book. And for me, getting those details, it helped me see this world through the perspective of these players who have such highly attuned senses and see the world so differently than the average person. And what, what was the, your goal and your purpose in having such clear details throughout the narrative? I mean, part of it was what you just talked about, is the, the players of Endgame have been raised literally since the moment they were born to be um, highly attuned to the world around them and to also be highly skilled. You know, they're experts in languages and weapons and tactics and strategy and disguise and hacking and you know, numerology and mathematics and theoretical physics. Um, but it was all, and, and it was to try to, to tune a reader into the book in the same way, to, to, to make a reader pay attention to everything, you know, to make a reader um, 
to heighten the experience of, of the words. You know, ultimately any book, whether it's, you know, a physical book or a digital book or, or whatever book, it's just words on a page. And, and to me, the best books are the books where somehow those words are heightened and carry more meaning. And, you know, I built in the detail to the level that I did in order to try to heighten the experience for the reader. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you're looking for these clues and trying to put these pieces together. Um, I, th- I think that definitely came off quite well. Um, I want to ask about Sarah, our American player. When we first see Sarah, she's speaking at her high school graduation, and, and she's giving this very, um, I guess you would say, modern speech about self-actualization and creating one's own reality. And then a meteor falls on her <laughs> and destroys her, her school and kills a bunch of her friends. And um, she has to come to grips with this concept of predestination or determinism, if you will. Uh, c- can you talk about thematically what you wanted to explore with this theme as, as well as any other themes in the book that were important to you? I mean, you know, like uh, manifest destiny is sort of a, a theme in a ton of literature and, and, in, and in a ton of sci-fi. Like that's what Star Wars is about. Like, and Star Wars to me is still, um, even though I experience all of it, you know, as, as films visually, it's still like, the greatest storytelling experience of my life. Mm. Um, and I, I wanted to play around with that stuff, you know, like, uh, do you control your destiny or don't you, um, to what, to what extent are we in control of who we are and, and what happens to us in our lives? Um, you know, what can we do to change it? Um, it's stuff that we all think about and we all live and so many of the greatest stories, you know, like the, the things I've mentioned, like the Hobbit is essentially about the, or, or, and Lord of the Rings are essentially about the same thing. Um, it's just a great basis for, for an epic, you know, somebody, um, fulfilling their destiny or not. Um, and what is their destiny and, and do they want to fulfill it? Um, are they prepared to fulfill it? What obstacles are in their way? And in this book, you know, not just Sarah, but all 12 of these players to a certain extent believe that their destiny is to play and win in game. And they've been raised to believe that and they've trained for it their whole lives. Um, Sarah specifically is, probably the player who resists that idea the most. And so, it, you know, it's, it's writing her was interesting because, um, some of them just move forward without hesitation and without doubt. Whereas she moves forward with great hesitation and great doubt. Do you think her being raised in America is part of where that hesitation or doubt comes from? Or was there, was there any the cultural influences there for her? Probably. I mean, you know, in America, we're, we're, uh, we're told that we can be anything we want to be, that, you know, our destiny is in our own hands, that, um, you know, our, our path is not predetermined, you know, um, that, that in America, whatever your dreams are, they can come true if you just, uh, if you just work hard enough, <laughs> which is, you know, a lot of cultures say that now, but we were the first to ever say it. Um, so, yeah, I think, uh, you know, again, when I was trying to write or when I was writing each of the characters, we did take sort of, you know, cultural norms and cultural traditions into account um, when, when when I was, you know, writing them. Um, so, yeah, she, she struggles with that idea. You know, maybe playing Endgame isn't her dream. Her dream was to go to college and play soccer and get good grades and become a doctor. So now that she's forced to play in game, what does that mean for her? And can she do it? And, and have babies with Christopher. We've got to remember that one too. <laughs> and have babies with her boyfriend, Christopher. <laughs> uh, you know, you do have uh, players from all around the globe uh, in this story. Um, what was the, the research process like? I mean, the challenge of understanding all the, the cultures from, which these individuals come, uh, I imagine just must have been a lot to get your hands around. 
Uh, sorry, could you repeat that? Yeah, the players come from cultures from all across the globe, and I'm, I imagine it must have been challenging to get your hands around all those different cultures and and bringing those into the book, but not in such a way that would completely overwhelm the narrative. Yeah, it was challenging, but it, it was uh, it was fun. Like, you know, I was talking about the Internet earlier, and the beauty of the Internet is we have all of the world's information um, at our fingertips at all times. You know, so when I was trying, you know, first when I was trying to decide which cultures to use, it was a fascinating um point of research, like what are the oldest cultures on earth? Um, where did they exist? What were their traditions? Were they peaceful? Were they warrior cultures? Were, uh, you know, did they worship the sky or did they worship the earth? Um, it was kind of amazing to, to learn all this stuff. Um, and, and honestly, it was pretty easy just because the internet provides you with everything you want whenever you want it. Um, you know, there there were real choices to be made. Like, there are so many great cultures in South America, ancient cultures. Um, so it was, all right, which one are we going to use? Same with Asia. Um, same with the Middle East. I mean, those the cultures in those um, the continents are, are, are far older than a lot of the stuff we have in North America. I mean, obviously, there have been people here in North America forever, but... Um, they weren't organized in the same ways and they certainly didn't build the same monuments that these other cultures built. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then once I had chosen the cultures, it was, uh, all right, what are the characters like? Is this going to be a boy or a girl? Is, are they going to, what's their strategy going to be? What's their approach going to be? Who are they? Um, what would a, a warrior from, you know, the Dongu culture in Mongolia look like in the 21st century? Um, it, it was fun. I mean, I, I'm definitely, I'm, the second book is already done, but, it, you know, hmm. I've been getting to do research like this for each of the books, and, and with each of them, it's been super fun and super cool. Now, of course, we have to mention uh, your partner in crime here, Mr. Uh, Nils Johnson Shelton, if I'm saying yep. his name correctly. And and he's yep. the author of the middle grade series, uh, The Otherworld Chronicles. So how did yep. you and Nils meet and decide to work together on this? <laughs> Nils and I met because our wives became friends about 15 years ago. Mm. Um, before, uh, before either of us were married. We've been friends ever since. Um, you know, Nils wrote a, wrote a series for my company, Full Fathom Five, a few years ago. He's a great writer and a great friend. And, you know, when I was doing Endgame, I wanted a partner because the workload is, um, is large. You know, we're trying to write three novels, you know, 30 novellas. There's a ton of research. At the same time, I'm running this company that does a lot of other things. And so the way we worked it is I created the mythology, did an outline for the first book, um, Mills wrote the first draft of the first book. Um, he did an awesome job. He's like, you know, he's a great, super gifted writer. Um, and then I took that first draft and, and rewrote it a few times and polished it up and tuned it up. And, um, we went from there. That's awesome. I'm always fascinated about collaboration, especially on projects as large as novels. I've asked, Larry Niven about it. I've had Kevin J. Anderson and Brian Herbert on and talked about how, how they do it. Um, and it's interesting. Everyone does it so differently. Uh, did, did the way the process you used for book one, was it, did it successful for you? Would you do anything differently next time you co-write a, a novel with somebody? No, we did the exact same thing for book two. <laughs> We're doing the exact same thing for book three. So it's good then. Uh, right. it, it worked for us. I mean, I think, uh, yeah, collaborations work different differently for for everybody um and i think collaborators always sort of find their own way yeah. you know it's like a it sounds corny but it's like a marriage every marriage is different and sure. every marriage sort of finds its own way um and and that's what we did here with nils being an author who has written for the middle grade level do, did you intend the novel primarily for younger readers or um, I mean, it certainly no. Feel I mean, Nils like a... also wrote an adult book called No Angel that was a, a New York Times bestseller. You know, 
I, I don't, I, I don't, I, we weren't thinking about age. It, Mills is a great storyteller, yeah. you know, and a, and a great writer. And that's what it was about more than that he had written a middle grade series. Okay. Good. I mean, certainly the content uh, doesn't feel like it's written for, <laughs> for kids. It feels like an adult book to me, um, but I know that's... Uh... I mean, we, we really, we didn't, we approached it that we want to write the book Here's the mythology. Let's write the best book we can. Right. We're not going to write specifically for people of any age. Right. You know, like, ideally, we get readers that are 14 and we get readers that are 84. You know, I, I, I hope readers of every age read the book. And younger than 14, the book is probably too violent for them. Yeah. Um, but that's, you know, that's more a decision between them and their parents. Right, um, right. We we wrote the book, best book we could, and and that was what it was about more than uh, doing something for a specific age. Right. Okay. Cool. Cool. Um, okay. I have a a gaming culture question for you because I'm I'm not a gamer myself. Um, what is your experience with gaming culture, and did that influence the writing or the style of or the mood of this novel in any way? I mean, I play a lot of video games. I love video games. I've, you know, played them since the Atari came out. Um, <laughs> you know, the ARG will be is it, much more specifically geared towards ARG and gaming culture. Mm. But really, just like with the book, it was about making the best thing we could, you know, um, and then hoping people loved it. It wasn't like, all right, let's do this for gaming culture. It was what's the best game we can make and uh, how do we go about making it? Yeah. Um, and, and it was as simple as that. Uh, I mean, I was blessed to get to work with Google who, you know, the guys I work with at Google, John Hankey and um, Jim Stewartson are like unbelievably intimidatingly smart guys. Um, and, and I was super stoked to get to work with them. You said book two has been written. Do you know when it's supposed to be published? Yeah, it'll be, uh, the novels will come out um, the the first or second week of October for the next three years. So this year, next year, and the year after. Okay, excellent. Um, you know, we have a, a lot of, I have to ask a nuts and bolts question because we have a lot of aspiring writers who listen to the show. And so I was just wondering if you could tell us just a little bit about your writing process. Um, do you outline extensively or are you more of a right by the seat of your pants kind of guy? What is your process like? Um, for my other books, I didn't outline them at all. I just sat down and wrote them. Um, for Endgame, um, we wrote a very, you know, or I wrote a, the starting point was a very long outline and a sort of organization of the mythology. Um, and for the second and third books, we've done the same thing. You know, after the first book was done and before we had sold it or shown it to anyone, it was, okay, we think this book works. And Nils and I sat down together, um, and the walls of my office are painted so that they're marker boards. And mm. we spent two or three days writing out a huge outline over, over a huge, over the, all over a huge wall and outlining very specifically, um, what we wanted to do and where we thought the book was going. Those outlines are always great starting points. You always end up deviating, um, from them a little bit. And I think that's important to do to deviate, um, to, to give yourself the freedom that, once you're in the writing process, you, you discover some things in your outline work and some don't. So you've got to be able to be flexible and, and adjust. Um, but these books were, were highly outlined just because they're so plot intensive. Yeah. You know, um, a lot of it's about, you know, it's about a global scavenger hunt. It's, it's very, very plot heavy and, and the plot has to work. You can't, um, be reading it and three quarters of the way have something happen that, uh, doesn't make any sense. And so we, we took great care to make sense, make everything make sense. Um, you know, that being said, I think every writer finds their own way. I mean, the, the really the important thing about, or the most important thing about becoming a writer is 
is finding your process, is finding what works for you. And for some writers, outlines work, for some don't. And even like I'm an example where for some books I need an outline and for some books I don't. It totally depends on, on, on I think, what the story you're telling is and how you're telling it and what feels comfortable for you, you know? Yeah. Writing's hard, and so the more comfortable you feel when you sit down to do it and the more confident you are when you're sitting there doing it, um, the better the book is going to be. And so, you know, I would, I always say, one thing I always say to young writers is if I can do it, anybody can do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing is like, I'm, I'm not that smart and I'm definitely not gifted. I was never one of these kids who was like, uh, you know, people thought, would ever grow up to be a writer and I've been able to do it just because I work hard and because I love it you know um, and if you can focus on those things like your love of books and your love of storytelling and, and consistent hard work over a long period of time you'll be fine you know I, I started trying to be a writer when I was 21 and my first book pub- got published when I was 33 so it took me 12 years to get there wow um, yeah, you know that was hard, and there was a lot of self doubt, and 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 times where I didn't think I'd ever actually be able to do it. It was like it was awesome. Well, and that's the whole Malcolm Gladwell outliers principle, or Ray Bradbury's one million r- words principle, and it seems pretty pretty universal from the folks that we've had on over the years. Whether it's Brandon Sanderson who wrote thirteen novels before he sold his first one. Uh, to that sort of 10-year window seems very uh, applicable to most people who want to do this seriously. So good encouragement not to give up. Yeah, 10 years. Give yourself 15 years. Just you know, And, and if you love it, keep doing it just because you love it. You know, like I, I, I say that to people all the time too. Like even if I wasn't making a living as a writer, I'd still be doing it. Yeah. You know, it just, I, I wouldn't, have as many people read it as I'm able to now. Um, <laughs> you know, and I, I always, I know how lucky I am to get to do this. I know what a place of privilege it is and how fortunate I've been over the course of my writing career to get to be able to do this every day. It's like, it's a great gift. Um, one that I definitely do not take for granted. Well, James, I have one last question for you, and I, I just learned about this literally about five minutes before I called you this morning, and that's Full Fathom 5. Is this the uh, company you were mentioning that you run? Yes. Can you tell us about that? I mean, yeah, Full Fathom 5 was started, I started it like four years ago or so. Um you know, I, I've always been fascinated with art, and, and a lot of my friends in New York are artists or art dealers, and um, I was writing something for Damien Hurst and went over to see him at his, at his studio, and his studio is like an art production facility. It's him, and he has 300 people who work for him, and he comes up with ideas, and they make the art, and I was fascinated by it, and I decided I wanted to try to do something using that model, but to do it to tell stories where I come up with the ideas for stuff and I have a whole bunch of people I work with who execute those ideas. Um, and that's what we do. You know, we do all kinds of stuff. We do other sci-fi stuff, but I am number four and Lorian legacy series is something we do. Um, you know, we, we do all kinds of different books. We sold 60 books to publishers and we've published about 30 of them. Um, we just started our own uh, digital publishing company, and we're going to be releasing a book a week. Um, you should send me your books. Um, we're looking for great writers, and it's all genre fiction. It's, wow. it's all sci-fi, fantasy, mystery, romance. Um, we're having a full seven five fiction prize where um, you can enter the prize and submit your book and the winner wins $10,000 in a publishing deal with us. Mm. Um, you know, it's really ultimately it's all about just like telling more stories. I can't write all the stories I want to tell. So I work with a whole bunch of other really awesome people to try to tell them. And we just, again, just try to do stuff we wish existed in the world, you know? 
That's awesome. So you're open to submissions, fullfathom5.com. I guarantee you, you're going to get an increase in submissions from folks listening to this. <laughs> I, I hope so. I mean, we're looking for great writers and, and we're looking for stuff that we want to read as readers. And that's really how we, how we judge what comes into us. Um, you know, would we be stoked to read this if we were buying it at Amazon? Right. Um, you know, and I'm a huge believer that there are a ton of writers out there who haven't been able to find homes in traditional publishing for whatever reason. It doesn't mean your books aren't good. It doesn't mean you're not going to be successful. It just means you haven't found a home yet. And and we want to be the home for those writers, all genre writers. James, it's been great having you on the show, but I do want to ask, is there anything you wanted to uh, mention today that I didn't ask you? No, man, you're a, you're an awesome interviewer. <laughs> it's pretty thorough. Um, <laughs> thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I appreciate you reading the book, and hopefully, I get to come back and talk to you again this time next year before uh, the next book comes out. Absolutely, we'll do that again. And folks, uh, Adventures and Sci-Fi Publishing dot com will have links for all of this stuff. So come check it out. October seventh is when. You can find the book at Barnes & Noble, your local bookstore, or online. And if you're in New York area, stop by, get your ticket for the uh, release event in Manhattan. It'll be a good time. So, James, best of luck. And, yeah, we'll do this again Thank next you. year. Thank you very, very much. Have a great day. And thanks, everybody, for listening and supporting. Visit Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos, and more. Email us at adventures in sci-fi publishing at gmail.com. Sound effects from the Free Sounds Project. Music by Asymmetry, found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast. <laughs>